Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I have a real hot diggity dog of a story, you guys. Today I'm going to be talking about the first woman to ever be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in Australia, a sentence that is hardly ever handed down. This initially stood out to me before I knew the extent of how heinous Catherine Knight's crime was, but it was really wild to me because she wasn't convicted until 2001, and I thought surely somebody else had to have gotten charged with this, another woman by now in Australia, I mean 2001. So I did a little bit of research, and I found out that Australia abolished the death penalty in 1985, and then decades later, the federal government passed a legislation that prohibited the reintroduction of capital punishment, period. Without capital punishment on the table, murder has the sentence of life in prison. However, unlike here in America, judges do not set a minimum, and this parole board decides who is eligible for release, like what their minimum sentence is, and they do this on a case-by-case basis. They also determine the parole length. Okay, so hardly anyone in Australia gets the sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Apparently, they have a lower homicide rate, though, than the global average. As of 2017, Australia's homicide rate was 0.19%, and the United States was 0.70%, if that just kind of helps put things a little bit in perspective. This interested me, and so I actually kind of dug around in the Australian criminal justice system, and in my opinion, it seems that they're a little bit more lenient than here. So let's jump into it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Now, why is Catherine serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole? Because she brutally murdered her boyfriend who she lived with. She then skinned his entire body. I'm talking even his ears, face folds, everything. And then she hung the skin in the entryway of their home. This is before she prepared the body to serve to his children. She paired his flesh with baked potatoes, a mixture of vegetables and gravy. His head was still in a pot of vegetables when the police arrived on the scene. A while later, she actually arranged his body crossed his legs and left his arm over a one liter soda. This is what the police found when they arrived. How crazy. There was a blood smeared note basically accusing him of molesting her daughter and son, all of which was like, I guess her reasoning for this crime, but the accusations were never found to be true or have any kind of leg to stand on. So I thought maybe there was a gas leak that made her crazy. Unfortunately, after I researched this case, I found that the writing was on the wall. She had a history of mental instability and domestic abuse. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with Catherine's mother. Catherine's mother, Barbara, was first married to a man named Jack Rohan, and they had four sons together. But then Barbara actually had an affair with a man named Ken Knight. Ken Knight was a co-worker of Barb's husband, Jack. Barbara and Jack separated, and she got with Ken Knight. It was such a big scandal to the town that they actually had to move away Barbara and Ken. None of Barbara's four boys went with her. The two older boys stayed with their dad, Jack, and the two younger boys stayed with their aunt. 
Barbara and Ken moved to Moore and they had four kids together, which included Catherine, who, by the way, was a twin. This would be the second adult twin I've mentioned on Storytime Podcast. Catherine was born in 1955. Barb's first husband, Jack, though, passed away, and so her eldest two sons came to live with them also. Catherine was four at the time. Catherine's dad, Ken, was a really bad alcoholic and would intimidate and abuse Barbara for sex a lot. The abuse was extremely severe. He'd bruise her up and force her to have sex with him, sometimes like 10 times a day. He would hit her so hard that he left marks on her, and she sometimes thought to only tell people that her husband knocked her out for sex, like I can think of a hundred things I'd say besides that. I seriously recommend anyone involved in domestic abuse report it, seek help, and leave. But for sure, don't pass it off as that. I mean, I'm, maybe that was the truth, but damn. So Catherine said that she was sexually abused by several family members, excluding her dad. She says her dad did not sexually abuse her, but her brothers did. And this went on until she was about 11. All the children endured a lot of beatings from both Ken and Barbara. According to the Daily Telegraph in Australia, her parents took turns beating them with just whatever was available. This included large paddles that they hung over the door, an electric cord, and even a dog lead. We know Catherine's father was an alcoholic, but I'm not sure if her mother was an addict of any sort. Based on Catherine's erratic and violent behavior as an adult, I would venture to guess her mom likely had a mental illness or was from and displayed a cycle of abuse or neglect herself. Catherine was particularly close to an uncle of hers and her twin sister, so it really rocked her world when she was 14 and her uncle committed suicide in 1969. I'm sure this had a deep effect on her because she'd had traumatic experience with men from a young age and this was like a man that she was close to and maybe even trusted and for him to die during her formative years I'm sure had an impact on who she became. In high school Catherine had been described as a loner and a bully. At one point she assaulted a student and another time she was injured by a teacher but here's the catch. The teacher was actually having to defend themselves against her. She ended up dropping out of school at only 15 and she was damn near completely illiterate, could barely read and write. At first, she worked at a clothing factory cutting fabric and within just one year, she landed her dream job. Okay, y'all. Her dream job was removing the offal of animal carcasses, which is the internal organs of a butchered animal in a butchering facility, like their gizzards and stuff. She was promoted quickly, woo, and given her own set of knives that she cherished. I mean, from the time she got them, she literally put a nail or a hook, I don't know, over her bed and hung them over her bed every night just in case she needed them. She did this in every home she lived in. Catherine met David Collette in 1973 at work, and he was quite the drinker. Apparently, he'd witnessed his best friend be killed on a job that they were working together for the railway, and it happened right in front of him. And then in 1968, he saw a train hit a school bus that resulted in six children dying. 
He helped recover the deceased and injured children, and these memories haunted him. And that's why he drank so heavily. And I mean heavily. He got fired and missed out on a lot of work, and I bet it because he was a damn alcoholic. So in 1974, they got married. And he actually rode drunk on the back of Catherine's motorcycle to their wedding ceremony. Catherine was 19, and Catherine's mom issued a warning to David before the ceremony and told him basically not to ever, ever, ever cross Catherine because she was very dangerous and would seriously kill him. So night one of being married, it's their wedding night, and after having sex three times, Catherine tried to strangle David when he fell asleep. This is because she wanted to have more sex. This was only one of many more violent outbursts to come. Sometime later, while Catherine was super pregnant, she burned all David's clothes and hit him in the back of the head with a frying pan. He barely got away from her and made it to the neighbor's yard before he collapsed. He had a severe skull fracture. Despite that, Catherine still convinced him not to press charges. After the birth of their child, Melissa Ann, in May of 1976, I'm not sure how long went between David marrying Catherine, them getting married and her fracturing his skull, or her fracturing his skull and her getting pregnant. I cannot find the timeline of that to save my life. But I do know shortly after Melissa was born, David left Catherine and Catherine lost her shit. After David left, Catherine was seen walking the baby down the road, like really aggressively slamming the baby's stroller around. She was doing it so hard that someone called the police. I'm sure they were concerned for both Catherine and the baby's well-being. Something wasn't right. Catherine was admitted to the hospital and spent several weeks recovering from her episode, which they attributed to postpartum depression. However, not long after her release, Catherine placed baby Melissa, who was only two months old, on the railroad tracks, short to a train arriving. She then walked off, found an axe. She probably found the axe like at someone's house, maybe in a truck bed, in a rick of wood, an open garage, whatever. But she found the axe, stole it, and marched into town threatening to kill people with it. While she was doing that, a man nearby the railroad tracks heard baby Melissa and rescued her only like minutes before a train was coming. Catherine was arrested and checked into St. Elmo's Hospital, where she recovered and checked herself out the next day. Yeah, apparently you can do that. That is insane. So in the meantime, David, who had been hiding from Catherine, she was pissed so she slashed a woman in the face with one of her specialty knives and demanded that she drive her to go find David. But the woman was lucky enough to escape Catherine when they stopped at a service station. See, the story is that before the police came, Catherine had nabbed a nine-year-old and was holding him hostage at knife point at this service station because this is where she made the woman drive her and that's where the woman fled from. The police were able to get control of the situation and they took Catherine to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. This is where she told nurses the plan was that she was going to go to the service station, kill the car mechanic that fixed her husband's car, because if the car mechanic hadn't fixed David's car, then David never could have left in the first place. I mean, that was seriously her thought process. 
after the mechanic she was going to go kill David and his mother. When the police disclosed everything that Catherine had done to her ex, David, he actually broke up with the girl he'd started a relationship with, and he moved in with his mother, who I think lived closer to Catherine, so he could better take care of Catherine and help her while she was in the mental institution. She got out in August of 1976, and she was released to her mother-in-law and David. They all moved to the suburb Ipswich. She continued her job at a different butcher shop, and life went on. They even had another baby, y'all. In 1980, she birthed a daughter named Natasha Marie. In 1984, Catherine left David. I don't know why she left David. I have no idea, but she left him. He did not leave her. And first she went to live with her parents and then she rented a house on her own. But in 1984-85, she hurt her back and then she was placed in government housing. So she didn't need to live by the butcher shop anymore. So she moved. After leaving David, she met a 38-year-old miner named David Saunders. This was in 1986. He was described to be a very gentle dog lover who was not violent at all. It was only a couple months before he moved in with her and her children. He kept his apartment he had, and it's a good thing he did because she would get really jealous and throw fits of rage, kicking him out, and then she would go beg him to come back. In May of 87, she actually sliced his puppy's throat in front of him just to show him what she was capable of if he ever had an affair or cheated on her and knocked him out with a damn frying pan, y'all. Despite these tales of abuse from Catherine and her history of mental instability, they had a daughter together named Sarah. This was Catherine's third daughter, her third child, and she was born June of 1988. Saunders and Catherine took a loan for a deposit on a house, and Catherine paid this loan off with her workers' comp in 1989. She completely covered every spot through this house with animal pelts, skulls, antlers, leather jackets, rakes, boots, pitchforks. I'm getting like a very western meets hillbilly cracker barrel vibe. I'm not sure when but an argument broke out between the two and Catherine hit him in the face with a damn iron then stabbed him in the stomach with scissors he moved back to scone and went into hiding scone i guess it must be a town in australia when he returned to see his daughter Catherine had put an apprehended violence order against him i'm assuming this is like a protective order Catherine quickly moved the hell on in 1990 she got pregnant again I found out very little about the relationship with 43-year-old John Chillingworth, but they only dated for a couple weeks before she got pregnant, and they had a son named Eric. They were together for three years. Some accounts say that after three years, she dumped him for a man that she'd been having an affair with, and others say that John Chillingworth had his final straw when Catherine's abusive behavior caused her to smash his false teeth to bits. Oh my gosh, I bet because false teeth are expensive and you can't just go up and get a new pair the next day. I mean, even if you have the money to buy a pair right then, they still take a minute to make and receive. Catherine's next and final lover was John Charles Thomas Price. He was the same age as Catherine. Now they're in like their late 30s, maybe 40. 
and they were both born in 1955, so they're the same age. He was a father of three, and he was very, very well-liked. His two older children lived with him, and his ex-wife kept their two-year-old daughter. Price was described to be a very loving father and just an overall really good guy. He knew about Catherine's violent outbursts in the past. It, everyone around town knew. But him and the kids liked her, and he was making plenty of money, so he had her move in. They did have violent arguments through their entire relationship. After like five years, I think, in 1998, the couple had an argument because John refused to marry her. And out of retaliation for refusing to marry her, she recorded a bunch of stuff that he had technically stolen from work. But, I mean, okay, he didn't really steal from his work. A lot of it was expired medical equipment that were going to be thrown out. So it was really sad when his boss had to fire him because he worked there for 17 years. Dude, John was pissed and he kicked her ass out. Good for him. John, though, took Catherine back. And because of this, a lot of his friends actually discontinued their friendship with him so long as he was going to be with Catherine. And his friends were right. Catherine was crazy and super dangerous. So February of 2000, Catherine began attacking John. She ultimately stabbed him in the chest. And I'm not sure what she used because there's no indication that he was seriously injured or if he was hospitalized or if charges were pressed against her for this but he did kick her out and February 29th he took out a restraining order that same day he literally told his co-workers if I do not come to work tomorrow it is because Catherine killed me they begged him not to go home but he still did he said that he did because he feared for his children but when he got home he found out that all his children were away at sleepovers some accounts say that the kids were at their mom's but I don't know if that's true because I don't know why he would go home. But regardless of why he went home, first he spent some time with his friends that he had in the neighborhood. And then he got home and got in bed at about 11 o'clock. I think not only would I have filed a police report, which he did, I would have probably gathered my children to go stay somewhere else if I was that in fear of my life. But I do understand why people don't always jump to extremes. Like he had a job, his kids were in school, how long could he avoid Catherine, what are the chances that she would actually kill him? These are a lot of things that victims of domestic abuse think about and a lot of reasons why it's hard to escape their abusers. It works the same for men. So Catherine prepared that night. First, she'd bought really sexy lingerie before she took her daughter Natasha out to eat Chinese food. This is according to the Daily Telegraph of Australia. They went out to eat because she wanted Natasha to watch her two younger kids. Natasha said yes, despite the fact that the kids didn't have any clean clothes, their school uniforms, or anything for the, the following day or that night. But whatever, Catherine took them to Natasha, and then she recorded a video of herself playing with Natasha's baby on a camcorder. And then she looked at the camera and she said, I love all my children. I hope I see you again. The Daily Telegraph also said that in a police report, Natasha mentioned that her mom was being unstable, and she said, I hope you're not going to kill Pricey and yourself. That night, though, she went to John's house, Catherine did, and he was already asleep. She watched some TV, she showered, put on that sexy lingerie, and then they had sex. 
Afterward, he rolled over and went to sleep. What the fuck, John? I mean, how afraid is he of her? Didn't he literally just file a restraining order and tell all his coworkers that if he didn't show up to work, it's because she killed him? Domestic violence is very real against men, and it's very serious. It's not something to be brushed off, even if you are a man. Now, after he fell back asleep, Catherine stabbed John with one of her knives. I believe this entire crime was probably executed with her specialty butcher knives that she coveted from work. The story the blood evidence tells is that he woke up to her stabbing him and he tried to turn on the light and escape. There was a chase through the house throughout which Catherine was violently stabbing him. John did open the door. There's blood smears on the door and he did make it outside. Either he stumbled back in for some reason or Catherine drug him back in. During this attack, she stabbed him a total of 37 times and he ultimately bled out in the hallway. It's going to get really gruesome, you guys. So hours later, she skinned John's entire body and she hung his flesh from a meat hook that was like in the archway between their I believe they're living in study. I'm not sure. She then decapitated his head and she placed it in a pot of vegetables that she'd been cooking. She made them dinner settings at the table. They were plates of meat from John's body that she prepared, a baked potato with gravy and vegetables. And oddly, there was three place settings, probably for her and his two older children. And there was one place setting thrown out in the backyard that looked as if somebody tried to eat it and they think that Catherine tried to eat it and actually couldn't was becoming sick and so she just like tossed it out there you guys seriously though she was preparing a meal to sit down and eat with his kids of him while his skin hung in the doorway okay so then Knight staged his body she crossed his legs and put one arm over a one liter soda bottle Remember, not only did she kill him in a brutal manner, she skinned him, okay? And she staged a completely skinned corpse. Early the next morning at like 6 a.m., neighbors were really worried when they saw John's car was still there. He probably relayed the same information to his neighbors that he had his coworkers. John's coworkers were also concerned when he didn't arrive to work, especially after what he'd told them the day before. The neighbor and co-worker who came to check on John went to go knock on his bedroom window first. Then they looked around and they found blood on the door and some blood droplets outside. Now, when police arrived, they busted in the home to find John's body, a very gruesome and out-of-this-world Buffalo Bill crime scene. And Catherine was passed out. Apparently, Catherine had taken some kind of sleeping pills. Next to John or Catherine was this note that was had blood stains on it and even little tiny bits of flesh. And it said it had claims that she did this to get back at John because basically he'd raped her son or daughter. None of them were found to be true, though. It was just a bunch of stuff she made up. Catherine was arraigned March 2001, to which she pled not guilty. And then she changed her plea. See, I think it wasn't looking too good for her with the jury. And that was concluded because several of the jury members opted out of viewing the photos of the crime scene because they were so graphic. And I'm sure her and her lawyer realized how how bad this was looking for her. 
But no one really knows if that's for sure why. Catherine never actually accepted responsibility or held herself accountable to the truth. And seriously, you guys, her attorneys asked if she could be pardoned from the courtroom while the witness described the torment that Catherine inflicted onto John. When I say the witness, I'm sure they mean the expert witness, probably whoever did the autopsy. I'm not sure what they would call them in Australia. But the judge refused to let Catherine be pardoned from the courtroom during this testimony, and she completely lost her shit and had to be sedated. November 8th. 2001 Catherine was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole you see usually they do describe a fixed parole period but the judge said for her paperwork to be marked as never to be released remember this is something that was had never ever been done before this is the first time anyone woman had received this sentence Yeah, she appealed it in 2006, saying it was too harsh of a punishment for the crime. Bitch, let's send you to Texas. I mean, oh my gosh. So she was denied her appeal, and she still remains in prison in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center of Australia. According to an article in 2017 from the NZ Herald, she's a bit of a queen bee in prison. Like, she sorts out fights amongst people. It says she's found religion. She paints. She knits. And she actually has a job in prison. She makes headphones in a factory from 8 to 1. She's described to be very private, and her room is super cluttered. Something interesting about prisons in Australia is they get to have a lot of more personal items than prisons in America. Now, she pretty much has no obvious contact with anyone in the outside world. No one ever really sees her talking on the phone. I don't think she really has visitors from what they said. And inside the prison is a kind of different story. She's like really liked there. Despite how prisoners feel about her, she is still a level four risk. This is the highest risk. And she's in maximum security. She'll never be assigned a lower security level in prison. So... What's really bizarre is despite the fact that you would think this crime was common knowledge in Australia, it's really not there either because how I mentioned that the journalists never really covered the story. So I wonder how notorious she is in prison. I feel like she'd be more notorious in prison than she would be in the outside world due to lack of publicity of this crime. Despite Catherine's dark tendencies, she wasn't always like that. Her first husband, David Collette, said that in many ways, she was the perfect woman for years. The perfect mom, the perfect housewife, and then she would just snap. That woman is so scary. She's clearly an abusive manipulator like her father. I found it interesting that her father, not interesting, I mean, it's it's awful, but there seemed to be a connection to me where her father would abuse her mother often to force or inflict more sex with her and Catherine's first real known assault on a partner was when she strangled her first husband because he wanted more sex on their honeymoon and I found it really odd that she killed John after they had sex and he fell asleep. Anyway, thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. I'm going to definitely be adding content for this episode on my social media. That is Storytime Slayer on Facebook, 
and story underscore time underscore slayer on Instagram. You can also email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. And if you're listening on Apple or wherever you can leave a review, please don't forget to leave me a review. I love five-star reviews. They're my favorite, but honesty is always the best policy. And I mostly depend on word of mouth and sharing. So please share, share, share. Feel free to email me if you have any comments, questions, concerns. Reach out to me on social media if you want to talk about these crimes. I love a good, love a good powwow on some true crime. So anyway, guys, thank you so much. Have a great week. Bye.